Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 208 of the Speaking Club podcast. Now, I wanted to kick the show off today with three powerful quotes from the wonderful Dolly Parton that resonated with me and hopefully will connect with you too. You never do a whole lot unless you're brave enough to try. When someone shows me their true colours, I believe them. And don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey! I hope you're well. I wanted to uh, take this opportunity actually at the start of the show to check in with you about your speaking. What are you struggling with right now? Are you finding it difficult to make your message simple and engaging? Do you get confused about what content to include? Or is it finding stories to tell that's stumping you? Well, if you're stuck and you want a bit of help getting clarity then head over to saraharcher.co.uk and book in for a complimentary one-to-one or you can pop me over an email at sarah at saraharcher.co.uk with a question and I'll give you my thoughts. Not only will it help you, but it will help me get some ideas for future shows. Win-win. Rightio, let's talk about today's show. I'm chuffed to have Dr. Claire Roberts as my guest. Claire reached out to thank me after taking my podcast guest strategy interview course and getting great results. So, of course, I hopped on a call with her to find out more. And that's when I discovered all the wonderful stuff that she's doing. But that stuff is very different to what she started out doing. Claire actually switched from being a clinical psychologist in the cold reaches of the UK to becoming a successful YouTuber in sunny Florida. Jealous I am. Anyway, her YouTube channel, Generation Calm, which she juggles while still being a full-time homeschooling mum, now has 25,000 subscribers and over 2 million views, which is a lot. And her channel helps people who are looking to better manage their mind and live a more powerful life. And she posts videos on there relating to stress management techniques, anxiety relief and relaxation methods, including guided meditations, which apparently are the most popular things on there. Now, I had to do a two part interview with Claire because, of course, I wanted to pick her brains around managing anxiety, but I also didn't want to miss the opportunity to get the lowdown on the ins and outs of growing a kick-ass YouTube channel. And so this is part one. And in this show, we're going to be talking about public speaking anxiety and how to tackle it. So if you have issues with confidence around public speaking, then do strap in because you are going to pick up tools, techniques, tips, and new ideas to stop fear getting in the way of sharing your message. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Claire Roberts. Thank you so much for inviting me here. 
absolute pleasure. So I found out about you uh, via a, a response you gave to an email I sent you and I can't believe all the great stuff that you're doing. And when I found out, I thought I've got to get her on the show. It's probably going to be a two-parter because Claire has got a lot to, to offer uh, you guys who are listening. So, but let's get, get straight in there. So first of all, I want you to tell me about your journey up until when you started doing videos for YouTube. Okay, so if you settle back, it's going to go yeah. back about 20 years ago. That's fine. And um, I just imagine I'm, I'm sitting in a, at the University of Birmingham. I'm doing my doctorate in clinical psychology. And everything I've done up until that point has been leading me there. So any work experience, I've done any jobs, any education, it's all been about me wanting to be a clinical psychologist. And there I am, I'm sitting there, I'm enjoying the work and I become qualified and I work in the NHS as a clinical psychologist. And just like I said, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm thinking I'm gonna stay there until I retire and then sit out with my <laughs> small pension from the NHS. And, um, and that was kind of my plan in my head. And I, I think at that point, about two years into the job, um, I was still loving it. But, you know, my personal life, I hadn't found the one I wanted to settle down with yet. And so there was this kind of yearning for, okay, I need to get out there into the world. And so I took a sabbatical for a year with every intention of going back to the same job, the, you know, everything being exactly the same, except about two months into the trip. So I was, I was going around the world on my own. And about two months into the trip, I'm in Thailand in this tiny little island called Koh Phayam. And I meet this American man and he's very charming and very handsome. And, um, and he knew straight away that we were meant to be together. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't in that headspace, right? I'm going to go back to England and pick up where I left off. So um, he was there on a two-week vacation. I was there just kind of, I, I passed across. It was just amazing. And um, he decided to take a few weeks off to travel with me. And eventually we had to say our tearful goodbyes. He was going home to America. I was continuing on my trip through Malaysia and Australia. And we made a promise that once I came to America that we'd meet up and that's exactly what we did and I never left so um so I've been in Florida ever since and it wasn't quite the way I'd planned it but things never quite work to plan do they and um I thought you know when you get those houses you see them sometimes people take their houses off a foundation and they literally move house they, they, they put a house on the back of a truck and they literally move the entire house and all its contents from one town to another. And I, th I think in my mind, I thought I could pick up my life and create it just, just fresh in Florida. And that's what was in my mind. And I think that was my downfall because I started doing um, psychology here. And just because you have that extra element that you have health insurance here in America rather than the NHS it made a huge difference and I wasn't anticipating that and it kind of got in the way of doing the therapy and so I was doing my residency here and I just felt like I was just butting my head up against a wall like the you know 
you might be teaching somebody or working with somebody and working on their self-esteem and finding their voice and being able to stick up for themselves. And then I would find out my boss is kind of hounding them for the money for the therapy on the, on the backside of it all because their insurance wasn't working properly. And it, it just didn't feel right. And in, in the end, I had to make the difficult decision not to do that. And partly that was because I also found out I was pregnant. <laughs> so, uh... so now I'm in America. I've left my country. I've left my job. I've left my parents. I've left my friends. I'm in this new country. I can't have the career I want. I've got these big life events all happening within about the space of a year. I've gotten married. I've emigrated. I'm now having a baby. And, and I think for a little while, I kind of went through a period of, I don't know if you call it grieving, maybe. Mm. You know, grief doesn't have to be about losing an actual person. It can be about losing what you thought life was going to be like. And, you know, someone with chronic illness, they they mourn for that healthy life they thought they were going to have, and now they have to reimagine this new one. And so for a long time, what I've been doing is being a full-time mom and being a full-time homeschooling mom. And in the background, I was processing all of this, thinking, what what? what is it I'm going to be able to do? And at one point I started looking into side hustles and I kept seeing all these webinars and videos and podcasts about side hustles. And I thought, okay, there was this germ of an idea. Like I can, I can do something here. I've got all this knowledge. I can help people. How can I do this? And that's when I decided YouTube might be a place for me to just start helping people with anxiety, maybe just create some videos about relaxation that might help somebody out there. And so that's, that's how I got into what I do now. Brilliant. So we've got romance, we've got adventure, <laughs> we've got all sorts in there, but before, and we will come back to YouTube at yeah. some point for sure. But I want to just, first of all, I want to clear something up because I yeah. think I can get confused by this and I think other people can too. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between a clinical psychologist, a psychiatrist, um, a coach, life coach, yeah. counselor. Yeah. Could you just make those distinctions so that we understand what you do and yeah. what you're qualified to do? Yeah. So the main difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist is the fact that a, psych a psychiatrist has medical training. So they're primarily trained as a doctor and then they go on to further training to become a psychiatrist. And it's a much longer route. It's very medically oriented. Now, you can have some psychiatrists that do a lot of therapy that maybe depending on kind of their background and what kind of work they're interested in, they can do the more therapeutic talking therapy stuff. But especially within the NHS, it tends to be very... Um, they'll come in and do the, the the severe cases, they'll give you some medication and then you'll see them again in maybe two months time. Whereas a psychologist, you have a lot of training before you start the doctorate course and then it's very clinical. You're doing a lot of placements on the job. So you're working for the NHS. The NHS is paying you to do the work. And you would probably see somebody for once a week um, and it's for an hour a week. And so it's, it's very different therapeutically because you're creating a relationship with someone. 
and you're not giving you're not giving medication you're seeing what can be changed in somebody's life in some way and it's still very problem focused whereas a coach is much more not problem focused it's more what can you do psychology is 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 tends to be more about what the clinical problem is, whether it's anxiety, depression, how that came about, and what can we do to to get you back on track again? So it, is it, I might be doing this completely wrong, but is it similar to in just thinking about the other parts of the body where like you'd go and see a surgeon maybe to fix something and then you'd get a physiotherapist to get you back working again. So yes. you would fit the sort of in the physiotherapist yeah. uh, portion of the journey once Absolutely. they'd been diagnosed and, you know, sort of given, you know, something yeah. to get started and exactly. then you'd take over. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's a really good distinction. And and in fact, I think there's a lot of therapies like physiotherapy, occupational therapy, nutritional therapy, like that we, we all kind of, I think we should be working a bit more together um on teams and stuff because i think we're just that bit more holistic in looking mm. at the mind and the body and how they work together and um i think if if we all did our training a bit more together as well like the psychiatrists and the psychologists and we just kind of understood each other a little bit more we could we could do our jobs even better cool and i did you a disservice at the start of the program which i must apologize for you are dr claire roberts yeah i don't you know what i don't really use it i remember when i first became a doctor it was a big thing for me and i and i put it on my um i had it on my credit card but yes it's doctor but but really when i introduce myself to people i've never used the doctor bit because i think people just mistake it and just assume you're a medical doctor and i'm not and i never i never want to you're not going to save someone's life on a plane yeah i'm not going to save somebody's life (laughs) you probably do it's just in a slightly different way exactly okay now the first thing that i wanted to talk to you about um you have your own experience of and that is something that a lot of the listeners to this show, I think, will also experience, and that is anxiety around public speaking. Um, can you share a bit more about your own um, history with speaking and your feelings about it and how you manage them yourself? Yeah, so like I said, when I was working in the NHS, I loved my job, but I loved the bit where I was one-on-one with a client in a room, and it's a very safe space, and um that that was where I shone that's what I enjoyed doing but I dreaded our monthly departmental meetings oh my goodness and there would be psychologists coming from all over the region and in my mind they were so wise and so knowledgeable and so kind of like high up there like these consultants and everything that I would just be sitting I mean think about the NHS for a minute I mean this is not a plush kind of corporate table we're all sitting around it's kind of like those those tables you get in a school and they're just all stuck around in a big rectangle and so you're kind of sitting there and talking but I would just kind of sit back like a little mouse and there would be times when I'd want to participate and kind of get my voice heard but there would be my heart would be pounding out of my chest I'd be blushing I'd be thinking thinking always thinking 
like, okay, is this, this is the lull in the conversation where I can say my bit and I'd be waiting for that, anticipating it, I'd have sweaty palms. And it would come to that moment and I'd either stumble over my words, my voice would sound all wavery, or I just wouldn't find the opportunity to speak. They would have moved on from that conversation by the time I actually get my words out. So I would leave the meeting feeling like an absolute failure. Like here I was helping my clients find their voice and helping them overcome something massive. But I was too scared to speak up in just like this tiny departmental meeting. It was ridiculous. And I thought that maybe I had kind of gotten over this by going traveling because, you know, you can't travel on your own and not speak up. You have to be, you know, figuring out who to find information from and, and you know, or you're, you're out ordering meals every day and you're eating on your own. I mean, this is, you can't travel without speaking up for yourself. But it came around again, reared its ugly head when it was my mother-in-law's 80th birthday party, right? Perfect. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous day. We're all sitting around and then all of a sudden, everybody's making speeches. They're bringing up memories of the, their mom. And I suddenly realized it's not just the sons doing it, like everybody's doing it. And it's going to come around to my turn soon. And mm. I feel that old familiar feeling. And I thought it had gone. And then even when it was my great aunt's memorial service, I'd wanted to recite a poem and I, I bailed out at the last minute again. So it's this kind of, I get it. I get that public speaking is difficult, but we often think it's not going to show up in our lives because we're not doing TED Talks or we're not, you know, we're not speaking in front of a packed auditorium, but it catches up with you. It's mm. not just those talks on stage. It's going to show up in your life at some point, whether it's you want to do a speech for your best friend's birthday or whatever it is, it's going to show up for you. Definitely. And I'm, I, I mean, I don't think a, you can be in business or be even even in employment you've got to have an interview it can yeah. be a panel interview there's there's no way of escaping this i think so you know most people do their you know people who feel this kind of fear will often avoid it as much as they can and uh -huh. and you could you can for a while but like you said it's like it will get you eventually yeah so how did you i mean how did you get over it yourself did you apply the tools that you apply to other people to yourself? How did you work it? Yeah, no, I didn't in a way. I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. I mean, I, I, the way I look at anxiety generally is through the lens of cognitive behavioral therapy, sometimes known as CBT. And I think it's kind of a popular thing for good reason. You know, it's not a fad. It's been around for a long, long time. And it's a structure that helps you see your problem as being maintained through your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, and how they all interact. And just by tweaking one little bit, it can have a huge impact and make a difference. So if you think about public speaking and the way your feelings are, and I'm not talking about feelings as in like emotions, I'm talking about like those sensations, because we already know you're anxious about it. So that's the emotion. But we're talking about those pesky little symptoms that you get, the shaking, the butterflies in the stomach, the sweating, the blushing, that feeling hot, the, um, you know, some people get stomach cramps and, you know, it can really kind of manifest itself 
And you see, this is where I think the mind and the body are just so intricate. They're just so together. And we want to be able to reduce the anxiety enough that you can keep those sensations just at a point where I heard a saying the other day that it's not about getting rid of the butterflies. It's about training them so they create a formation. And I love that idea that you don't want to get rid of the butterflies completely. You just want to get them in control so that you can provide your best performance. And so one of the basic things is breathing. I know breath work is a big kind of like hot, trendy thing to talk about these days, but I just see it that if you can slow down your breathing, it's just slowing it down. And especially if you can breathe out, so you exhale for longer than you breathe in, then it makes such a huge difference because it just tells your brain that you are safe. You're seeing the public speaking as a threat, a threat to your, you know, your brain can't tell the difference. They th it thinks you're in your worst peril. Something terrible is gonna happen to you. And just by breathing, you're telling your brain, slow down, everything's okay, everything's safe. Look, I can take nice, long, slow breaths and everything's good. Because when we're anxious, we don't, we're, we're, we're kind of caved in, we're, our breath is very shallow and very up in our chest, but if you can just slow it down, it makes a huge difference. Um, another thing when it comes to physical sensations is relaxing the hot spots in your body, those areas of tension in your muscles, so some of the basic ones are your jaw. I don't know if you ever get tension in your jaw, but if you can just, just open your mouth slightly, relax the teeth, like just open them ever so slightly and just lower that jaw, it makes a huge difference. Same with your shoulders. If you can just lower your shoulders down away from your ears, if you can just relax your stomach, I often just say like, just let it out. Just <laughs> let it all hang out because we, we hold on to so much tension when we're nervous yeah. in our stomach. So um, these are just some basic things that you can do just to get rid of those kind of sensations in your body. And by getting those in control, you just kind of feel a little bit better and a little less anxious. Um, and so that's just like the, the feelings bit, but then you've got the, the thoughts as well. So I think it's really important. We often try to push thoughts to the back of our head, especially those negative ones. But I think we need to look at them. We need to figure out what it is we're actually scared of. Because every person is going to have a different negative thought, whether it's, oh, I'm going to trip up. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to say something stupid. Whatever that might be, write it down and it will really help. I think we often try to avoid what our negative thoughts are. We can also try um, self-compassionate talk. So being mm -hmm. kind to ourselves, because often that, that negative voice we have is so critical. Like you wouldn't even say these things to your worst enemy, the things mm -hmm. that you say to yourself in your head before speaking. Um, and then another one would be to try affirmations as well. And they can feel a bit clunky sometimes, like you're feeling really anxious, but then you're going to say, oh, I am a perfect speaker and everybody's going to find me really funny. It's like, oh, it doesn't quite work. But what it does, it just interrupts that natural negative tendency that we have. Um, and then the other thing would be on the behavioral side of thing, 
what I'm very good at is avoiding. So I probably haven't put my, <laughs> my, my advice into, um, into experience yet, but we, what we want to do is avoid the situation because it's so scary to be a public speaker and have all of these horrible sensations. It's so much easier to just decide not to do it. Like I bailed out of saying that poem at my great aunt's memorial service. I felt instantly better when I made that decision. The heartbeat started going back down to normal. I wasn't blushing anymore. I wasn't hot and sweaty. And that's the thing. It will also go down if you go and do the public speaking. Yeah. Right? But we never we never stay there long enough because we avoid, and it's it's a quick win if you avoid. So I think it's important to create a graded exposure though. So try and think of what your ultimate goal is for speaking, but then work your way up to it. Don't go in at the deep end because that's just mm. gonna terrify you. So just start, um, like when we first met, it was because I did um, your podcast course and I wasn't ready to go on live podcasts yet. Like we are now, I've worked up to this moment because it terrified me to think, oh my goodness, I'm not in control of, editing this out and I don't know who's going to listen to it I might say something stupid and then it's going to be on the internet for everybody to hear from 175 different countries that it's been downloaded from and it, it was just too scary to do that so I started small and I contacted people with memberships and I worked my way up because it seemed just less scary and I think that's something that we can all learn to do. Yeah, I think there's some really useful things there in terms of there's different aspects to the anxiety and they hit you at different points in the journey. Um, and I often get, you know, I, you know, I teach people to speak and I often get people say, well, I'm not ready. Mm. But it's not about being ready to speak in front of 250 people. It's about being committed to starting the journey because no one yes. I work with when we worked, you know, when we start is ready mm -hmm. to do that. But it's, it's about that journey. Yeah. Um, now, Susan Jeffers mm -hmm. book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. How much do you feel that that is true that, it, you know, the exposure, I mean, you just said graded exposure, that yeah. it, the only way through, uh, the only way to overcome fear is to go through it. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. Um, and I'm not saying that you have to, because it's going to be your, your worst nightmare scenario playing in your head. So we're not saying, oh, you actually have to trip up on stage for you to like get over that. What we're, all we're trying to do is to not avoid right? You are going to feel fear. They, I always think of, um, like you think of celebrities of being so together and having it all figured out and not being scared. But I think about um, Annie Lennox. So Annie Lennox, um, so together on stage, she's an absolute legend, so confident. And yet I remember reading an article about her that she was scared of driving. And she had this terrible driving anxiety. So I just try to remind myself that the celebrities, Adele says that she's anxious before she goes on stage for even now. And there's so many people out there that they're not going to get rid of their anxiety completely. When you look at um, like the Oscars, you know, when you got those award ceremonies and these are famous actors and actresses, but you can tell they're out of the element when they're up there receiving 
an award and they have to do this speech because they're used to just being behind the camera and it's a very kind of set up atmosphere. They've got lines that they've they've learned repeatedly and they can do a take and a take and then they're up on this stage and you can tell they're nervous. So we're not trying to get rid of all the nerves because it's just about getting them just a little bit under control so that you can create this performance. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I agree with you. It's, it's if you didn't have those nerves and that's just your body getting ready to peak perform, like yeah. any athlete, when they're on the blocks, they'll be feeling those nerves. And it's just it's just getting ready for you to, to go and do your best. But yeah, I think that's that's really good. And I think one of the things that you uh, I've heard you talk about is uh, having an alter ego. <laughs> um, do you want to tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I read a fantastic book a couple of years ago called The Ego Effect by Todd Herman. And he suggests that you can inject instant confidence in yourself by assuming an alter ego. So you find somebody that you admire. It could be an actor, a celebrity, a TV character, historical figure, somebody in a book. It could be a president. It could be anyone living or um, dead. And if a difficult or anxiety-provoking situation comes up, you can just ask, ask yourself, what would they do in this situation? And even people like Beyonce, I think she used an alter ego called Sasha Fierce, where she would just kind of, just to give her that confidence when she was first starting out and just to get that edge on the stage, you kind of assume this alter ego. And it doesn't mean you're copying them or being them. It just gives you this confidence, this inner kind of thing to get you there in the first place. Good. And yours is who? <laughs> Mine's Dolly Parton. And <laughs> it might seem strange because we don't look alike, we don't talk alike. Like she's a country singer and I can't sing. <laughs> but um, there's so much I admire about her. And so I have a little pen that I have with me that I don't use all the time, but it's really sparkly. It's got like these little rhinestone sparkles on that just remind me of Dolly. So whenever I've got like an interview or something, or um, I just need to take that extra little bit of presence with me, I, I get that little pen out of its pouch and I just have it there in front of me. And it just kind of reminds me like, what would Dolly do? It just gives you that little bit of confidence that you need sometimes that little kick to get you started. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that some people will be listening potentially and you know, you might be thinking, Sarah, you talk about being authentic and bringing your personality out and everything else. But now we're talking about being someone else. How, how do those two things go together? And I think just in terms of what you said, Claire, what I've got from you and, and from my own experience, you do, when you go to speak, it is you. It's just you. Like, I don't know if you have in America, this Barocca, um, the energy, there's an energy drink that you have, or it gives you, and it's, they say it's you, but that's sort of the best version of you. When you go to speak, it is you, but it's just, yeah. there is a performance element to it. You're slightly, you know, the energy's up. So it absolutely, even though we're using these techniques to get you on the stage or on the video or on Zoom or wherever it happens to be, when you get on there, that is you. It's just getting you up there in the first place. Is that, would you say that's about right? Yeah, that's completely right. Um, it's just that extra little bit, and it could be anything. It doesn't have to be an alter ego. It could just be that you have your imagination, what, how this could 
go? Can you do guided imagery, visualization to imagine your best ever performance beforehand? It's just yeah. another little tool that you can use to, to give yourself that extra boost. And like you say, energy, but not too much energy that you're going to kind of lose it, but enough energy to kind of just be that extra little you. Like I don't talk like this normally when I'm at home. I'm just normally chill and, or in a therapy session. But today I'm just, you know, I got my, I got my little pen with me and, <laughs> and I'm channeling Dolly. I don't sound like Dolly, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it just gives you that little boost. Cool. And I know that, um, for instance, Tony Robbins, jumps on a trampoline before he goes on stage and it, <laughs> and it yeah it is often about changing state mm -hmm. and so so get it you know just switching from I'm um, off stage to I'm um, on stage and getting that energy and you know Amy Cuddy just does the sort of power poses um some people listen to uh, you know rock music like what were your favorite tracks so it is it's part part of it is getting over the the fear part of it is changing your state to say right this is me here this is me now going going off to be slightly bigger version of me yeah. in front of the audience yeah. cool okay good now what do I want to talk to you about now negative self-talk which you mentioned about that and I just want to come back round to that mm and just expand on that a little bit now you said you know people get worried that actually giving airtime to these thoughts is a bad thing and it gives them more power mm. and you've already said that's not true and and writing them down is there anything else that people need to do other than write them down to to spend any time at looking at those things and examining them at all is there any value to that before they go on it you see, I think, yes, I mean, CBT does look at analysing your thoughts and maybe changing them in a different light and, and um, questioning them. But I actually think if you're doing this at home on your own, just writing it down gives it less power. Because mm -hmm. when you've got it in your head, it tends to just ruminate. It just goes round yes. and round and round and there's never any kind of um, closure to it. It just keeps rearing its ugly head over and over again. And I think by writing it down, it just gives it that little less power. You think it's going to um, kind of jump up off the page off you and, and bite you in the bum or something, but it's not. And I think there's, oh, what's the book by Cameron? Who do I want to say? Where, she's, uh, where she does the artist states, Julia Cameron. And she talks about the morning pages and... And she suggests that first thing in the morning, you get up and you just free write everything that's in your brain that you wouldn't even think of giving it any kind of space whatsoever. You give yourself three pages in the morning and you just write down all those silly little thoughts. And they could be something as simple as what am I going to make for dinner today? Or it could be I'm feeling really awful and I feel like there's something wrong with me. And, you know, it could be anything, but you just keep writing. I think she says it's like having a little broom whisk that you just whisk out the little, like, cobwebs in your brain. And it just gives you this kind of space and this freedom for other thoughts to come in that are much more pleasant and um, positive. And so I think you don't have to analyze the thoughts. You can, 
and what we often do in therapy is kind of look at it through the lens of if you were in a in a court of law you know and somebody said okay so what's the truth here do you are you really going to trip up on a stage where's the evidence for this so you can you can kind of play play with it and look at the evidence for the thought and it kind of looks a little silly after a while because you think well you know i don't have any evidence really i just i just keep thinking it's going to happen but actually you can you don't have to go through that process just the mere writing it down i think will help whisk it away and kind of uh, you know with that idea of a broom and i think i think possibly because of the whole manifesting thing people are scared of giving any weight to negative thinking because manifestation and the secret is all about positive thoughts keep everything positive and there's this idea that you have to think positive to get have positive things happen to you and then given any weight to negative things means terrible things are going to happen to you so that and that's kind of at the back of what ocd is like as well you you think if i don't do this something terrible is going to happen so i have to do this is this compulsion but you don't have to think positively it's really normal to have negative thoughts it's really normal to have self-critical thoughts and it's kind of just slowing them down writing them down accepting that this is just part of who you are and it's okay yeah i think i I kind of went off on a soapbox no no that's really good and that's maybe there's three things that i want to sort of to to say there which is first of all just in terms of manifest i love manifesting yeah me too i do it yeah and for me it's like if you don't get that thought out of your head it will just keep going like a like a little five-year-old child or three-year-old child like keeping on at you which will then make you focus on that thing which is then the lack or the absence of it or the the issue so you'll spend more time thinking about it if you don't get it out of your head Mm. and then I always I don't know if this this is a sort of a metaphor or analogy that I had that really helps me with this is when it's in your head it's it's in the shadows Mm. it's in the dark and I've had this before I don't know if you've had where I'll be you know, at nighttime and there'll be something in the room, you know, especially if I'm staying in a different place, there'll be like, I don't know, hat stand or something. And in the dark, that hat stand can be like a monster. But as soon as you shine a light on it, it is, you see it for what it is, a hat stand. And this is a, a, a sort of similar to the thoughts in your head versus the thoughts on your page is that once you start getting them into the light, they do have less power. But also, when you do stand up comedy and people heckle you, mm-hmm. this is the other point that you made as well. That if you say something, you know, someone heckles you, they think they're being clever, but probably they've had a few beers and they probably, they're not, <laughs> they're not that clever. So they say something and you just repeat it back to them mm-hmm. and you keep repeating it and everyone can hear how silly that thing is. And then they hear how silly it, it is. Yeah. So those sorts, three things came to mind. Um, but yeah, there's really good, uh, really good points there that, uh, that you brought up. So um, I don't know if any of those, are they accurate? I haven't said anything yeah, that's, no, I love- that's wrong. No, I love that analogy of the light and the dark, because I think that's what therapy is all about, is about bringing those dark things that you think are so... A lot of people come to therapy, they think they're the worst client you're ever... There's nothing anyone's ever going to do to make me feel better. They think they're the worst. They've had the worst trauma. They've had the worst 
um, they've, they've had the worst anxiety or the worst depression. And when they find out that actually you've kind of heard things like this before, you're not the first, you're not going to be the last, it's actually very common. And I think that's what people need to hear that, you know, it's not so dark. Once you get it out and you talk to someone about it or you write it on a page, it suddenly doesn't have that power over you anymore. And um, I think part of therapy is that you, you create that therapeutic relationship with someone so they feel safe enough to tell you the terrible things that are keeping them up at night or the, that darkness, as you call it, which I like, and you'll bring it out into the light and actually it doesn't hurt them anymore. Mm. Once, once it's out into the open and you can do something about it, it's not that strange. It's not that dark. I don't think I've heard anything that's kind of surprised me because when you sit in therapy enough times, you've heard it all. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you, you kind of got this permission to say anything in front yeah. of a therapist. And I think that's what this is. It's like just you write it down yeah. and it's yeah. just not got that power over you anymore. And there is that normalizing effect as well when people say, actually, I've, don't worry, I've heard that before tons of times. Obviously, you're special as a human being, but you're not yeah. that special when it comes yeah. to this because yeah. we're, we're just human and it's our minds and they're a nightmare. Good. Yeah. Okay. Really, really helpful stuff there. Now, I want to switch over now to, to the other aspect of, you know, the other half of this in terms of the vehicle that you use to help people today, which is YouTube. Ooh, left you on a cliffhanger there. I'll be sharing part two of Claire's interview in a couple of weeks. But how did you find part one? I love Claire has overcome speaking issues herself and she's doing great, isn't she? Do go out and check out Generation Calm and all the great stuff she has on her channel, which uh, has lots there to help you out with all sorts of issues where your mind might be getting in the way, not just public speaking. Also, if what Claire said resonated with you, do go and say hi and let her know. Okay, that's me done for this week. Do remember to pop along to saraharcher.co.uk if you want to get some help with your speaking struggles. And as ever, if you are a regular listener and you get value from the show, would you help me out by taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash T-S-C. Okie doke. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll be back next week with more speaking and marketing aha tools, tips and inspiration. In the meantime, don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live. Each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives. 
There'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message, your storytelling, your humour and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members. Then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support. If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.